Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Welcome to the NASCAR NBC podcast. I'm your host, Nate Ryan. Back here with another post-race edition of the podcast, and I am joined again on our post-Homestead Miami Speedway episode by the man of the hour, Steve Letarte. Stevie, interesting Sunday for you. You returned to the pit box for the first time in, oh, six-plus years uh, as the crew chief for the number seven of Corey LaJoy, Spire Motorsports, going through some COVID-19 protocols, short staffing issues. So you were called up from the bullpen. Uh, just take us through it. We'll just start there. You know, what was your day like? Well, you know, while we use the term crew chiefing, I want to be clear. Um, there wasn't a lot of crew chiefing going on. I was definitely the guy on the radio for Corey LaJoy and helped kind of help him execute the plan and manage his emotions and all the things a crew chief can do. But car setup, car build, anything like that had nothing to do with me. It's Ryan Sparks' team. It, uh, my goal was to really just help him out. As you mentioned, COVID protocol had some major staffing issues over at Spire. They're an up-and-coming two-car organization, so they had some – I won't say some. They had severe – limitations on available crew members. We had to call in some help from a lot of other teams, some Xfinity teams, just, you know, what we could do. COVID protocol makes it very difficult for teams members to move around, but there was a lot of guys that either aren't in the sport anymore or part-time and and we filled up the pit box with everybody we could behind pit wall. We were good over pit wall, but behind pit wall to catch tires and hoses. And and I got on the radio and to be honest, Nate, it was, um, it was just a lot of fun. I just enjoyed it. The best advice I got was from Dale Jr. He said, buddy, look, he learned this driving the Xfinity cars. He said, just, just enjoy it. Like, you don't know when it's going to be your last. Absorb every sight, sound, experience. That's what I did. And while I feel like I've done my homework on what happens in the garage area, there's one thing to read about it and another thing to see pictures about it and another thing to actually do it. So we pushed our car through inspection. I haven't been in the garage area for almost 18 months due to COVID. So a lot of faces I've only seen through this beautiful thing of Zoom. I got to see in person and it, it was just a great experience, a lot of fun. Unfortunately, the race didn't quite, quite go like we wanted. We had a mechanical failure, but uh, even that couldn't wipe the smile off my face. So you did crew chiefing, Stevie, for nine plus seasons in the Cup Series. And as you mentioned, I mean, you haven't even been in the garage in 18 months, but about six months or six years plus since you'd actually been in a competitive situation. What stood out to you? What was it like? I mean, were there things that were jarring that you were like, man, I don't rem- I didn't remember that or this was different or, you know, what stood out to you from just being back in the garage? So the biggest thing perhaps is, you know, it's not like I've been completely away from it. I probably would have a laundry list if I just disappeared for six years, came back, teleported in. It's night and day different. It's nothing uh, like at all. But Really, to be honest, how normal it seemed to be totally different from anything I've ever seen. That makes sense, right? I've never seen a one-day show. I've never seen no practice before the race. Yet, you would think that's how NASCAR has always operated. NASCAR and the teams, like, okay, safety protocol. I think, man, we're going to have to check in all these people. How are we going to do it? Smooth as glass. 
tech, smooth as glass. The amount of stuff they inspect in a 45 minute window on a car, unreal. Just, it was great to see the machine at work, to be kind of quite honest, because while I was um, able to see the machine at work from green flag to checkered because of my job up in the booth and watching it, the stuff beforehand were kind of whispers and rumors and tweets and you know, live through other people's conversations just to see it firsthand, to push a car through inspection, uh, to push it out on the grid, to see everybody come out on the grid at 1.32 hours before the race, fire all these cars up in a very organized manner. Uh, the 7 itself had an issue. We had to go to the back. We had unapproved adjustments. You know, five years ago, that would involve Fabian would have been out, had to be out there. Would have been, this was just no big deal. Like everything was so efficient. It reminded me that everything we don't think is possible, we, like our barriers are way too small. Like anything's possible. We can race anywhere. We can change the schedule all we want. We can change a car. While we want. If, if NASCAR can go through what it did in the last 18 months to 24 months and me see the end product that I've not given enough credit to this weekend, then NASCAR can do anything NASCAR wants to do. Teams and the manufacturers and the TV partners and the owners uh, and the sanctioning body have some sort of dream that it can be obtained because I don't want to downplay it. It's easy to talk. You know, it's easy to say, oh, you know, it's one day show and they expect in the morning. It's amazing. The efficiency of this is truly amazing. And it's become a well-oiled machine in the what? 10 months, I guess, now that they've gotten accustomed to this flow, this rhythm. Yeah, well-oiled machine and and just, uh, you know, a well-oiled machine and confidence and, you know, distance, just just everything. It, I mean, if you took yeah. the mass off, you, you would have thought it was just another day, right? The masks are only going to remind you like, hey, you know, this is still a crazy pandemic. So you mentioned, Stevie, a little bit of a hiccup pre-race, but until the engine problem at the end of the second stage, it seemed, from my perspective at least, and Grant, I'm, I don't really have uh, the view that you did, but did th th the first two stages go pretty much on course? Did you feel like you were shaping up for a decent day? Yeah, you always want to be faster. You always want to be better. Spire's still trying to find its footing. Uh, I think the story in the garage area, right? We start at Daytona, then we go to the road course, then we go to Miami. Miami is the first mile and a half. We're going to talk about this, I'm sure, with William Byron, right? This is the first chance everybody has to stack up. Well, that's no different for Hendrick trying to win races. And yeah. Spire Motorsports, you know, while they're not new, right, they're approach of organization is new. All the cars are now in-house. They have their own team. Uh, you know, they have two cars. It's expanding. So, you know, that bogey of, of pecking order has to be established. So I didn't know where to run. Um, you know, I, I was hoping, man, may, you know, maybe we could get somewhere 20th to 25th. I think we ran 26th to 28th. Our car wasn't driving very good. Ryan Sparks and I were chatting it up on the computer, trying to figure out what our next adjustments were going to be. I don't know. I'm a racer, I guess. You can always be faster. That's a kind of simple answer. Uh, yeah. But but I thought it was great. You know, it um, it was, uh, it was yeah, I'm shaping up to be a good day. I think fuel mileage wise, and when you look at it cycle that, we hopefully could have snuck somewhere inside the top 25. That would have been a great day. Building blocks. That's not the goal of this race team long term, but the goal is to build. That's what they were doing. Listen, mechanical stuff that's going to happen. That's part of racing. That's why you run the race. Right, right. And those building blocks, I mean, you've been involved now with Spire for a few months and helping them build toward that, that greater goal. And maybe this sort of, that, maybe that answers the question I'm about to ask, but you had the driver, you had Corey LaJoy on your Latard on Location podcast last week, a little bonus episode. And I was struck, Stevie, by and you seemed like the nervous one. <laughs> he seemed completely unworried. He was like, no, we're going to be fine. This is, this is going to be no problem at all. Could you just speak to that? I mean, it seemed like, I mean, obviously he's got trust from working with you for a few months, but he seemed extremely confident that, and maybe again, that speaks to NASCAR being a well-oiled machine in pandemic times. Everybody just knows how to adapt now. Yeah. I, you know, 
I'm going to answer this kind of from backwards to front if it makes sense. So everybody always, I mean, aren't you nervous when they turn the camera on and you got to talk about, no, I've done it now for six years. There is anxiety that you do a nice job. That's anxiety that you've prepared for the right questions on the test because live sporting events, you know, you don't know the questions. It's not a studio show, right? Like someone <laughs> could run great that you just didn't happen to spend a lot of time on that, that week of preparation, you know? So there's that anxiety, but there aren't nerves. And if I flip back to my crew chiefing days, it wasn't nerves. It was anxiety to run well. Well, now this week I was going out of my bubble. My bubble is TV. I'm comfortable in TV. It's been 200 and something races since I sat on top of the pit box. I didn't know what I didn't know. Now, when the green flag fell, there was still a lot. Like, I don't want to make it sound like, you know, you choose rules. I've never called a race with a stage, Nate. Never have I yeah. sat on top of a pit box and seen a stage checker flag wave. So, yeah. You know, there were some firsts on Sunday, but once the engines fired and we rolled off, it really kind of was like riding a bike. I'm not saying I did good or bad, but it was, there was no more nerves. It was all right. Here's the radio button. Okay. There's the spot. Oh, look at that. It's still racing cars in a circle. I've done this for a long time. Um, and then I just kind of felt like I was back to being my, my, you know, what I used to do. The biggest thing though, was I wasn't crew chiefing that car. I was communicating to the driver. The crew chief was at home typing what he wanted done. And, and I think that's why I was nervous because my role was to execute their plan, not right. my own plan. I think I'd have been way more confident if me and Dale Jr. were going to take a dirt car somewhere where you know, it was our plan. But this wasn't the deal. This was somebody else's plan. All you could do is screw up what somebody else was telling you to do. Yeah, yeah you know, <laughs> miscommunicate. Yeah. I thought you meant up yeah. on the track bar. You meant down. I'm like, oh, boy, this is huge. I don't want to be this guy. I just want to, you know, I want to do your yeah. thing. And I had to be a little careful because I was focused on the seven, but then the racer was so good. I'm like, okay, I got to put my blinders on here. I'm not up in the booth. I got one car to look at, not yeah. 40. Um, yeah. And unfortunately, though, I did get to watch the second half of the race. I stood in the corner and watched it in person for a little bit. And it was, I, you know, listen, I know I'm not normal. We all know I'm not normal. There's no place I would rather be, perhaps, outside of spending time with my family. No place I would rather be than standing in the middle of a corner somewhere in an infield watching race cars make laps. Like, it's, 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 that's it. That's my happy place in life. So I'm thankful for the chance to go sit on a pit box. I hate that we didn't get to run all the laps. And I was thankful for the 100 or so I got to watch standing down. I kind of found a little nook exit of four by the, uh, by the help area there, which was a great place to watch them try to pick up the throttle. That's cool. Well, I'm glad there was a silver lining to all of it. So you made your debut as a Cup Series crew chief, Steve, in September 2005 at New Hampshire with Jeff Gordon. And uh, you've told this story before. We wrote it in your book, Leading the Way, which I highly recommend people check out. Story of your, your time with Dale Jr. And the way you described that first race as a cup crew chief was it, it went by like, you know, you started and then three hours later, it was like somebody tapped you on your shoulder and said, time to pack up. You're like, well, what just happened? Did it feel that way at all Sunday? Or it sounds like it's just different because you have so much more experience. Uh, yeah, this one I thought was going to be that way, but nope, this one was a normal speed, still slow motion. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think when I was the best at my job, it moved in slow motion and that helped me kind of see the strategy. So we only did really, with the way the cautions broke up, there's really only one green flag pit cycle, but it was slow. Like I kind of saw who was going to come when, and I was chatting with Sparks on when I thought we should come. And I was on my calculator kind of figuring out, well, this is where the tire fall off is. And this is where we are. And this is where we are relative to the leader. So I was amazed. It's right down the middle. I was amazed of how much stuff had changed right? Setups and inspection and cars and stuff. I mean, it's amazing. And I was amazed how much hadn't. 
and, and that was as comfortable as could be. And I knew that other stuff had changed, but like I said, I got to see it in person. Th this exercise was wonderful for me personally and wonderful for me professionally because when I get to go to the booth now, I feel I have always with a lot of confidence know in my heart I put the work in to stand up there in the booth and, and give um, analysis of what these people are doing. But this is a real strong, I'm talking dark, sharpie check mark to say, you know what? Like in the last few months, you sat down there and got to experience it again. So that's just one more kind of reassurance that all that work, that you're working in the right areas. How about that? That's your biggest fear, right, Nate? Like when you write a story or anything, don't you want to, you just want to make sure you're kind of, it's not the question of are you working? Are you asking the right questions? Right. That was the biggest thing is I feel like now when I talk to whomever, Alan Gustafson over Zoom before our first race at Nashville on NBC, my questions might be a little different because of this experience. And I think that's great. That, that makes it a valuable experience. It's good for everyone, man. It's good for you, but it's, it's going to be good for, for viewers of our races as well, that you're informed that way. All right, let's briefly pause our podcast discussion here, but still want to talk to Stevie Letarte about Las Vegas. Very appropriate that this is the race coming up, Stevie, because none of the favorites have won in the odds powered by PointsBet Sportsbook this season in the NASCAR Cup Series. We've got Christopher Bell, we've got William Byron, we've got Michael McDowell, Daytona 500 winner. Who do you like this Sunday at Las Vegas Motor Speedway, Stevie? And will this year of the underdog continue? Well, listen, we can talk about the favorites all we want. I think that's boring, right? Who wants to hear about the favorites when it comes to betting, right? Points back, they got these great odds. What do you want to do? You want to make a little bit or do you want to gamble, sit around and have fun with your buddies? You mentioned it, the year of the long shot. Michael McDowell was the biggest long shot. But then we had what I call those middle field players, right? Not really long shots, not really favorites, both William Byron and uh, Christopher Bell at the road course. So when I look at Las Vegas, guys that are going to be somewhere in the middle, it's perhaps someone like Austin Dillon, perhaps a Tyler Reddick, perhaps one of these guys, a big long shot. Do we believe this Roush Fenway speed is real? Ryan Newman, Chris Buescher, you're going to get long, long shot odds on your money. A small bet could have a big return. So the question is, do you believe it, Nate? Is it real? Is it the year of the long shot? If so, I think you might look at either RCR or Roush Fenway as two good options. All right, now let's return to our NASCAR and NBC podcast discussion with Steve Letarte, Post Homestead. A listener of the podcast, somebody you know, Dustin Long, is curious about crew limits in NASCAR. Obviously, that's something that's that's different now versus uh, when you were in the garage. I actually, it was, was different pre-pandemic, but certainly much more different now. And Dustin wanted me to ask you, and this is, I think it's a good question, like we've seen a lot of engineers transition into the crew chief role in recent years. And a lot of times it's, they start next to the crew chief on the box and then they move in. Well, with the limitations, a lot of teams don't necessarily bring engineers to the track anymore. Like um, Chris Gale being a good example last year, of a guy who just, he's an engineer himself as a crew chief. He didn't feel the need to have an engineer with him. He wanted to have another mechanical guy. How do you see that impacting thing now that you've, you've sort of been exposed to like what it's like to have those limits that crew chiefs face at the track? Do you think that will hurt engineers at all in making those crew chief transitions if they have to make it directly from shop to the track? Well, I mean, one reason I was there this weekend is because when you start calling people that are available, they haven't got the chance to do it. They yeah. haven't sat on a pet box in 18 months either. So yeah. I do think that it, it it's going to change the way some of these careers are developed. It'll be interesting. You know, there were crew limits. I want to make sure I tell the story accurately. There were crew limits pre-pandemic. Right. It was open number. Then NASCAR got in and said, okay, we're going to help the teams have a little bit of structure around here. 
and we put a crew limit in and it was, I'm going to use the word reasonable. I don't have an opinion to say it wasn't a reasonable number, but then the pandemic forced everyone to become very stringent on what's allowed at the racetrack. The pandemic number allows for nothing. It doesn't allow for growth. It doesn't allow for training. It, it, I mean, it allows enough people to put a car on the racetrack, which by the way, I, I'm not knocking as it should, because the most important thing is 40 cars on the racetrack for the fans to cheer on and a healthy work working environment for the teams. So I'm good with that. I'm excited for if whenever the magic wand gets waved and vaccines or whatever has to happen for this to go back to as normal as it can be for that limit to get opened back up. Because I do believe when, when you talk about, you know, what's the long-term effect, we know what the pandemic is and how awful it's affected so many people, but what's the long-term effect? And we have conversations about kids in school and all these different things, right? But when we look at our NASCAR hat, right, let's put our NASCAR glasses on for a minute. It has made it tougher for young talent to develop. Um, I think you're going to see a wave of maybe truck crew chiefs. And we've kind of seen it. And I don't think this is pandemic driven, but Rudy Fugel getting the move up. Uh, Kevin Bellacourt over at Spires out of the truck garage. You know, I think what you're going to see is a wave of, you know, guys that are on the box in Xfinity and trucks kind of popping into cup over the next two or three years, just because there's going to be this 18 month gap of opportunity yeah. for that engineer. Like I took over for Robbie Loomis for, Two years before I became Jeff Gordon's crew chief, I sat on the box next to Robbie. I'm not an engineer, but I sat up there as the car chief. And I was like, hey, man, you think we should pit? We can short pit here. And he taught me how to see a race. That's hard to do from home. Uh, so these engineers that perhaps would be the next step up without the real in-the-battle experience, they might be passed over. I don't know if that's true or not, but it's a great question by Dustin. Yeah, uh, I don't think he's off base at all. Yeah, and you make a good analogy there. And again, not to make light of the pandemic in any sort of way, but it sounds to me a little bit like the debate, the arguments we hear about virtual versus in-person learning and the gap that unfortunately a lot of students in America are going to be facing over the past year is somewhat similar to like what you're describing, it sounds like. Yeah, I mean, you, it, it, it's everywhere, right? It's uh, student athletes, it's professional athletes, careers, it's, it's all over the world. And this is just one way it's being affected. I'll tell you the other way it's being affected. I've never called a car into the pit box, not on the pit box. I stood on the pit box, get a pretty good view, car coming yeah. down from my right. Well, I had to get down and be on pit wall because I had to call in the pit box and then hand the tire over because I was part of the pit stop. First time around, I almost, my man almost didn't get a tire. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I don't know, five, four, three, two, one. And yeah. I was like, good. And I was kind of started to look up, you know, you kind of get your bearings of where, who's dropping the jack when, when they're leaving, how you're going to blend. And I'm like, oh, you need this. Oh, hey, hey, here you go. My bad. Let me roll that one to you. <laughs> uh, you know, but there was like, like the jack dropped on the right side. And at this point I should have the left rear tire over. And, and, and I'm like, oh, you hadn't even thought. And tell the man ran and I kind of caught him out of the corner of my eye, running around and knows a car. I'm like, Oh, he's gonna need what I'm leaning on. Like, this <laughs> oh boy! I'm like this is, you know, all the meetings we had with all the different personnel about the sign and the hoses and the let's. It's not about the great stuff we do. Try not to have. I'm like, I'm gonna be the guy that messes this up. Yeah. So yeah. It was, uh, I had to. Whew, man, I had to like kind of one of those kind of slap your face, like get in the game, man. Get in the game. Pay attention. So just there's one more thing you have to worry about, but that's great. I mean, that illustrates. But we've heard Chase Elliott say over the last year that he likes the, the limits a little bit because it makes it feel more like his late model short track days where everybody's got to do something. Everybody is indispensable in, the, in this oh, situation, right? I mean, there, there is no one 
no one without their hands dirty after a pit stop. No one, right? If you are allowed to be there, that means you're doing something. Handing a tire, <laughs> catching a tire, throwing a hose, you know, running the sign. I mean, it, it, there's five guys over pit wall. Well, it takes more than five behind pit wall to execute this pit stop. It's all hands on deck. So you mentioned Rudy Fugel's name, Stevie. He, of course, crew chief for William Byron. He won in his third race as a Cup Series crew chief. You're a great guest to have again this week because I looked it up. You won in your sixth race as a Cup crew chief with Jeff Gordon at Martinsville. So obviously, you know, Rudy Fugel has a lot of experience as a crew chief truck series and, and working with Byron before and winning and Kyle Busch Motorsports. But what is it like for a guy like that to come to the top level and win so early? And is this, I mean, do you look at, is, is this another just Rick Hendrick stroke of personnel genius putting these guys together? So the first question is, what does it do for him? For me, it allowed me to be more confident in my decisions away from the racetrack. During the race, you don't have enough time to be confident or not confident. You make decisions and you move. It's the other six days a week that I, I gain confidence that, no, this is the car I want to take. No, 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 no. This is the setup we're going to run. You know, up until then, you're, I was a little fearful. Now I had nowhere near the experience or the resume that Rudy Fugel has. The mm -hmm. man's stepping in with more wins with William Byron, I think, than perhaps any crew chief. They did it together in the truck series. Somebody should fact check me, but I, I mean, they've won a lot together. An engine at Phoenix is really what cost them the truck championship, in my opinion. And he's been at KBM. He knows how to get the job done. My, my question going into the season was, could, how quickly could someone who I think is very talented, his resume says that, speaking of Rudy Fugel, how quickly can he absorb the mass of help and information he's going to have at one of the biggest powerhouse teams? Because now instead of whatever numbers he's had in his past, it's a multiple of that. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people are involved for those Hendrick Motorsports cars to run well. And I'm just talking about the Hendrick employees. I'm not even talking about the other companies that they have hired and that provide information. So, you know, the, the fire hose of stuff, reports, meetings, information, you know, while it's great, it can be overwhelming and a distraction. And I was like, can Rudy find his? Because no one can have the same path through this, his path to absorb, to study, to be a good person, to get good rest, to like, it's not just making the car go fast. Like, you, you know, yeah, you work 24 hours a day and then you're so physically exhausted, you can't do anything. Like you have to learn how to manage all this. And I didn't know how long it would take. Apparently not long. Um, <laughs> Hendrick Motorsports had four cars in the top 15. You have to ask yourself, we talk about Rudy Fugel and William Byron because they should, because they're the winner. Kyle Larson was up there, probably no surprise, at Miami. We thought he would run well. I'd say Chad Canales had a pretty good winner. Yeah. Sounds like whatever, the movement over there between Jeff Andrews and Chad Canales to kind of get organized. I know they won the championship with Chase Elliott, but I think if we look back, you know, they had good speed at times, but it was a little maybe of a roller coaster of a year. Um, you know, Chad should always have had the chance to be the head guy over there when it comes to competition. You have to give him a little tip of the hat and say, well, you know, it's not like the 24 dominated and everybody else was outside the top 15. They were kind of all there. And uh, so I'm going to give him a tip of the hat. And then William Byron and Rudy Fugel deserve the rest because they were the best of the four. There was no doubt of that. So, uh, yeah, I don't know Rudy very well. I actually got to speak to him for five minutes before the race down there. And um, I'm excited to get to get to know him. Uh, you, I, I saw William Byron's interview after the race. I mean, he talks about him with just such reverence that that it's like, yeah, man, those guys are are seems like they're attached at the hip, which is great. Yeah. So it just proves to me that, yeah, this it, I don't know who decided that he should be the guy for William, but bravo, good decision.
You know, not just William Byron, but I think we've heard Kyle Busch talk about Rudy Fugel with the same reverence. And I'm like you, Stevie, like I tried to do some research this morning looking for his bio information. All I can tell you is the guy's from New York and he's in his late 30s. <laughs> that's that's like Bro. all I know about this guy. But yet he's like, to your point, he's done really well in NASCAR and yet kind of kept a low profile somehow. Yeah, listen, I have a pretty good Rolodex. I try to, I always try to text whoever it is that's been successful that weekend. It doesn't matter who it is. Yeah. Off the bottom, friend or professional acquaintance because of my TV job, I like to respond to most people with, hey man, great, great run. Doesn't matter how many times they won. I, I want them to know that I that I know how tough that is. So I don't care if they've done it six weeks in a row or if their first career win. I try to send that text. I was reminded today that he's so new, I don't have a way to get a hold of him yet. So uh, uh, to your point, you know. So now the next step for Rudy is you didn't win in the Truck Series. You won on the big stage with one of the biggest teams, with one of the biggest up and coming stars. I have zero reason why anybody should be concerned. But from someone who, as you just admitted, is a little difficult to find information on, it won't be hard for long, right? People yeah. are going to start to do some prying for all the right reasons. They're not going to try to discourage or distract. He deserves the accolades. I want to be one that give him the accolades, but I'm going to need some more information if, if the fan at home wants to believe what I'm going to say. I, I bet your man can ask or somebody at Hendrick can probably hook you up with a cell phone number. Yeah, I like think I could probably get by. And I have Williams. So I'm just going to text William. Be like, hey, go. William, congrats. By the way, tell your crew chief I said congrats. And hey, <laughs> could you share me his digits? You know, I'd like to, like to talk to the guy. Right to the source. One more thing on the race I want to wrap up with you on, Stevie. Uh, so Michael McDowell, first mile and a half top 10 ever for Front Row Motorsports. He finishes sixth. Um, and now I believe has, has three top 10s to start the year after winning the Daytona 500. Martin Drex Jr. was probably the best of so-called maybe powerhouse teams, although he didn't, you know, Reddick ended up finishing second. But it was interesting to me that both Truex and McDowell were asked afterward about the seeming parody where we saw some interesting developments during this race. You know, Chris Buescher led a lot toward the front. We saw Roush up there like we haven't before. And both McDowell and Truex talked about the parts freeze as being a factor maybe and why we're seeing this, this level of parody to start the 20. 21 season. I know I've heard you mention this before. I've heard Joey Logano mention it to uh, Jeff Gluck uh, at Daytona. So explain to us, especially because you've worked with the team, what is the parts freeze and what sort of impact is it having on the Cup Series? So basically, if you go back sometime, and, and I don't want to quote the exact dates, a year, year and a half, two years ago, I'm not exactly sure the date, call it a year, guessing, with the anticipation of this new generation car on its way. NASCAR and the teams. This wasn't just NASCAR's idea. They've been meeting about this. How should we go about this? And that group, that collective group said, you know what we should do is we should, we need to freeze the development of new components, certain components, not the whole race car. You know, there's a handful. And because they said, you know, the only way we can afford to buy all these new cars is we got to kind of find some money somewhere. So if we freeze development on the physical components, man, we can budget that money for the new car. Great idea. What the rule then comes into play is you have a limited amount of designs of key components, suspension components like a spindle, oiling aerodynamic components like an oil tank and exhaust pipes. I could bore you with the details, but you get the idea. Key components. I do not want the fan to think that we're talking the whole car, mm -hmm. anything but. Just five or six, seven, eight, ten, you know, a couple handfuls of key components that we see updated designs often. Like when somebody says, you know, 20 years, not 20, five years ago, hey, new car, well, what's better about it? These are the types of things that perhaps you had changed. You had looked in these areas. 
So NASCAR puts a freeze on it and says, if you're currently competing, you can only have this many. If you're a new team, when you get in life, you're allowed to fill up, right? Like we're not going to penalize you. But once that design is full, there's no, like you can't come up with a new one and say, oh, we'll get rid of design one. I want to give you design seven. Nope. No, 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 no. Once your design list is full, that's it. Those are the designs you're allowed to race on. Now you can mount them upside down, right side up, inside out. NASCAR doesn't care how you set your car up. But you have to do it with these approved designs. And I think now the pandemic hit. Now the car gets pushed back another season. Now we're seeing these, quote, parts freezes. You know, you never heard about them last year. So why are we hearing about them now? Well, because there was an off season with parts being frozen. Every off season, you come up with new gadgets, you know, new widgets. So they're still trying to do that, but there's a list of parts that can't do that too. Um, that's really the whole thing. And, and to be honest, with the new car and with most of the parts being purchasable, I think I'm going to learn more as I go here that you're going to start to see some of that. You know, a lot of these parts can't be changed. Now they can be assembled differently and they can be set up differently, but the parts themselves can't be changed. Hmm. And in the end, I think it's great, right? Because technology is still being pushed forward. And, I mean, every day, leaps and bounds, light years, the technology moves. It's not about the components themselves. And, and uh, the stars in my mind are the, are the brains trying to figure out how to dissect the race better, the men and women that jump over pit wall to do the pit stops, and most importantly, the stars behind the wheel. So it's interesting because I felt like the conventional wisdom when I first started hearing this topic come up was much like what we heard last year with Gibbs, that, uh, hey, nothing's changing from 2019, really. This is the last year of the new of the, what was supposed to be then, the Gen 6 in 2020. Joe Gibbs should be just as dominant last year, and they weren't. And it, I feel like we heard similar kind of refrains this year of, you know, parts freeze, the, the smaller teams are going to have a tough time with this. The, the big teams will just maintain their advantages. But it sounds like the opposite's kind of happening. You know? Yeah, I mean, the, the truth, here's the truth. The truth is um, you can't unlearn, and the, the people are too driven. Advantages are sought out all the time. And while, it, you know, what the parts freeze or what the, whatever the new thing is, you just, you keep looking other places. I mean, you still, you can't, you know, people are like, oh, we need to go back how racing was in aerodynamics. You can't unlearn. The yeah. box is open. Pandora's box is open. I mean, aerodynamics, there are rules in marathons now. You can't run, you know, you can't cycle behind a guy close enough on triathlon. Like, you can't unlearn these things. So it amazes me. We could talk parody, but we can also talk, if you look since the parts were, quote, frozen, it hasn't been one guy winning all the right. Like we have seen different winners. So like, for instance, the nine of Chase Elliott, no one can disagree with he was faster at the end of the year than he was at the beginning of the year last year. Right. Well, if they only had the same parts. How'd they go faster? I have my opinions. I'm not going to put them out here, right? Someone should ask Chad that. that. I guess that's my point to the fans is I don't want somebody to, I don't want anyone to believe we're running an IROC series. These cars are not provided by NASCAR to the drivers. Henry Motorsports has their own cars. I mean, if that's the case, then Front Row wouldn't have had their first ever top 10 at a mile and a half because I believe in their driver group that they could have had others, right? Mm -hmm. The equipment got better and now they're there, you know? Um, so it's a complicated question that if, to be honest, if you could answer, you definitely don't want to work in the TV business. You want to be, <laughs> you know, either the head of NASCAR or the head of a race team, because if you know the exact answer, then you're a genius. Speaking of the head of NASCAR, uh, you know, going all the way back to the, the days of Bill France, there's no question NASCAR likes parody. They, they like, you know, back in the days when they were just spoilers on a weekly basis, that was because they wanted to keep the makes even. So any chance that but we're seeing maybe some impact from the parts freeze that this has an impact on next gen 
um, going forward, anything that they could apply here to maintain? I mean, this is what they essentially want is, is to keep things level. Well, I mean, you know, in my mind, next gen, the majority of the car has to be bought, purchased and assembled, um, which, which listen, now I also want to tell the race fan, when you say it's never been that way, you're inaccurate. Because if you go back to the 80s and early 90s, you couldn't, no one built chassis. I'm mm -hmm. like, oh, right. Hutcherson Pagan, BSR, Ronnie Hopkins, you bought a car. So, you know, not because you had to, but because you did. So this isn't unheard of. I don't know. I really don't know. People ask me all the time what I think the new car is going to do. I don't know. I think it looks pretty cool. I'm not scared. I don't have anxiety or fear that it's not going to go put on great racing. I know there are going to be challenges as there are with any major shift and we can exploit those challenges and talk about them after they happen. Like we should have known better. We can Monday morning quarterback them all we want, or we can understand that real change isn't easy. That goes for way more than just NASCAR. When I make that statement, you know, real change isn't easy. And, and I think we've all learned that in, in our lives in many different areas. And, and when you bring it all the way back to a sanctioning body in a sport, if the teams are committed and NASCAR is committed, then who are we to pick apart the easy, low-hanging fruit of the mistakes or the challenges? Yeah. You know, I'm going to look at the positives of it, and I think the positives currently outweigh any negatives I can dream up. So I'm going to be a, an optimistic race fan when the new car starts hitting the racetrack in the race team's hands. We've yeah. seen laps already, but I want to see the teams do it. I, those boys on the teams, there are a lot of them, and they're smart. So I want to see what they do with the cars when they get them. We'll start getting a peek at that, I think, uh, next couple of months as they, they open up the testing a little more. Let's look ahead and wrap up here, Stevie. One, one more for you. Uh, we got Las Vegas Motor Speedway, another mile and a half now, but very much a separate entity, I think, than Homestead Miami Speedway, which I think a lot of people would say is an outlier. But uh, many of my peers <laughs> are jumping to conclusions and saying like, oh, 2021 season, different than ever, more parity than ever. Was Sunday really much of a barometer just because it was a mile and a half track? Or was it a bit of a continuation of the X factor that we saw from Daytona 500, Daytona Road Course? Will Vegas be a better barometer this Sunday? All right. So you're going to hate me, but where's the parity? <laughs> Michael McDowell. I mean, that's that's what, and I don't think a lot of people had Byron right, Bell right. McDowell. Byron so McDowell wins the Daytona 500, and then finishes my fantasy lineup. Okay, so yeah. we can't, you know, all right, all right. Christopher Bell wins the road course race. Okay, let's not forget who he was around, who he passed. Like, you know, yeah. Look at the top ten at Miami. Okay, Michael McDowell. I don't know. I'm not. So here's the difference. I don't look at winners. Winners is the guy that got to the line first. You know how many reasons a guy can get to the line first? You may, they earn it. I'm, I'm not taking away their victory. That doesn't tell a story. That, that's like watching a movie in snapshots. You want to go watch a three-hour movie and a bunch of pictures? Sure, here you go. But you're not watching a movie. You're looking at pictures. You know, you don't watch the race that way. So why would we only look at the results from the guy who finished first? I don't see this magical parody that everyone else has seen. Mm -hmm. I see a few teams that have found a little speed or good opportunities, or I, McDowell's top 10 at Miami is, I think, the only one that I yet to have a good answer about, other than, oh, maybe, just maybe, he won the Daytona 500, and now he's in the playoffs, and then Ford said, well, he's one of our guys, so we're going to fund his Like, yeah. There's a lot of ways I can, with zero knowledge, and I don't like the black helicopter theory, so I don't want to start making them up here, but I can come up with four or five plausible reasons why that car all of a sudden had speed. From the people that put the motors in it to the you know blue oval on the hood to the partner companies that Roush Fenton. like I have a lot of people that are now invested in Michael McDowell that perhaps wasn't as invested in him before he got to the finish line first at Daytona. So yeah. I'm 
struggling a little with this parody conversation. Now, the word you used, I forgot it now, but I think you said it was little, what did you say? It wasn't standard. It was outside the ordinary. Describe outlier. Yeah, outlier. Okay, yep. well, the regular season, there's 26 outliers. Like we talked about the schedule and people talked about the road courses and the this and the dirt and the that. No, no, no. This is what we've done. Here you go. There are 26 races in the regular season. We have uh, six road courses. Ooh, well, now there's only 20 ovals. Two are at super speedways. No, wait. Three are at the super speedways. Ooh, now we only got 17. Oh, oh wait. One's on dirt. Ooh, now we only got 16. Yeah. Oh, well, two are at Pocono. Do you count them? Well, I don't know. Ooh, now we're at 14. Well, Miami's an outlier. Well, now you're like, where are they? At? Maybe it's yeah. all outliers. Yeah. Maybe what we've really done has nothing to do with the parts, has nothing to do with the cars. Maybe it doesn't have anything to do with anything other than we no longer have umpteen pretty formal mile and a half that all look the same. Maybe that's really it. And I blame the mile and a half. I'm looking at it from an engineering standpoint, which is going to bore you, but type of surface, banking, speed. I mean, what's yeah. Dover like? Well, just Dover. What's Bristol like? Just Bristol. What's Darlington like? Just Darlington. Well, we, we've lost races of tracks that race similar. I think the word outlier is the whole regular season. It's a great way to look at it. It's a great perspective. That's why we love you having you on the podcast. Uh, and we loved your perspective from top of the pit box too, but hope you don't have to go back there anytime soon. <laughs> me either. I loved it, Nate, but me either. You know what? Everybody said, what did you learn? Here's what I learned. It was a great exercise. I'm so thankful for the opportunity. And I think the big thing I learned is I walked off that pit box with a smile on my face that I got a chance and I can't wait to go back to the booth. It didn't light some fire in me that I was like, gosh, I miss crew chiefing. I miss the people. I miss the competition. Yes, I love being on television explaining the sport that I love. So it was, it was more a great exercise and a trip to sunny southern Florida. Why not? Can't pass that up. Well, we love having you back in the booth, and uh, we loved having you come on here and talk about it. So thanks for being here, man. Absolutely. Our thanks again to NASCAR and NBC analyst Steve Letarte for joining us once again to recap the cup race at Homestead Miami Speedway and the unique role that he played in it as the de facto crew chief of the number seven Chevrolet for Spire Motorsports, driven by Corey LaJoy. If only I was a more clever host, I was thinking after we were done recording this, that I should have dropped in a Captain Phillips style, I'm the crew chief now type reference to introduce Steve Letart. But then again, I probably didn't want to make him any more self-conscious than he already was about returning atop the pit box. Nonetheless, still really appreciate him coming on here and providing an inside look of what calling the race and being in the garage is like nowadays in NASCAR as a working team member during the pandemic. Like Steve before this past Sunday, I myself haven't been in a garage now for nearly 16 months. I do miss it, and it was nice to get his informed insight into how things work these days. And as Stevie mentioned, it also might be something you notice in informing his race analysis as well on our weekly Splash and Go videos, which are available twice weekly on the Motorsports on NBC YouTube channel. And you'll also be able to pick up some of that Steve Woodhart insight when NASCAR on NBC picks up the schedule again at Nashville in June. Thanks as always to NBC Sports producers Aaron Feldstein and Emily Conboy for helping with the coordination and recording of this podcast. Appreciate their hard work as always. The NASCAR on NBC podcast is available wherever you download podcasts. Please leave us a rating and review to help spread the word. And any feedback you can send to me on Twitter, at Nate Ryan is my handle. Thanks again for listening to the NASCAR and NBC podcast.
Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.